The reading of the word of the Lord today is Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, and I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a found helper fit for him. So the Lord God had caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is, this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my fl flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Catherine. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are in the middle of a series that we started at the beginning of, well, we restarted at the beginning of the September. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to just turn to so the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. Just find the Song of Solomon. Uh, that's ultimately where we're going to end up and spend a little bit of time camping. I'm going to read a bunch of other scripture before we get there, but it'll be on the screen. I would prefer if you would just kind of find the Song of Solomon and stay there until uh, we get there and then just read along on these other passages with me on, this, on the screen. Um, on September 5th, we restarted a series that we were in the middle of when the pandemic hit. It's called Countercultural Convictions. Uh, I started that series on the 5th, just kind of giving an overview as to why we were doing it. And then we had our founding pastor come in on the 12th, uh, Justin Anderson, and he talked about uh, gender. And then last week, while I was out of town, uh, we had our, our next-gen pastor, Trey, come up and, and did just a fantastic job talking about uh, the vulnerable. And then this week, um, we're going to be talking about sex and the biblical sexual ethic. I was surprised this week to find out how many people suddenly realized they needed to go out of town. Anyway, um, and if you're new, if this is your first time here, congratulations. Um, so we're, we're gonna, that's what we're going to be talking about today is the biblical sexual ethic. So I'm going to dive right in because we have a ton to cover. Um, the Bible on sex. Uh, I know just from conversations uh, inside and outside of the church that some have the idea that God is unhappy about sex. Like humanity sort of discovered it behind his back and we've been trying to hide it from him. And that's just not true. What the Bible teaches about sex is that it's not our invention, but rather God's gift to us. It's a beautiful, beautiful gift to us. But he also gives this, us this gift with a particular context in which sexual activity is to be practiced. He calls us to this, and the reason he does that is because this is good news for us, and it's good for us to take this uh, extremely valuable thing, this wonderful gift, but this gift that also has attached to it when it's practiced in uh, uh, a way that is outside of God's understanding of how it's supposed to be practiced. It has the potential for probably the greatest pain that we can experience as human beings. And some of you would agree with that, knowing what you've been through in regard to that. So God is creator. 
Therefore, he created sex and gender, and therefore, he knows what is best for us. So what I want to do is back up a little bit and give some uh, philosophical overview for what we're going to talk about, which also includes uh, other parts of this, of this series, including gender. And then we're going to narrow in on the sex part of it. Uh, I've mentioned this book several times in the last few weeks. It's called Cynical Theories. It's by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, neither of whom are followers of Christ. In fact, uh, Lindsay is an avowed atheist, and both are politically progressive leftists. And yet they've written this book, Cynical Theories, pushing back against all these postmodern theories that our culture finds ourselves enmeshed in today. And in their book, they quote the imminent, their word, the imminent postmodern theorist, Gail Rubin, as writing, it is impossible to think with any clarity about the politics of race, gender, or sexuality, as long as these are thought of as biological entities rather than social constructs. As long as these things are thought of biologically, rather than social constructs, then we can't talk about them, she says. Now, this, of course, is utter nonsense. Our postmodern social scientists today, and I'm a social scientist, and I'm very unhappy happy about what has happened in our discipline in the last 10 or 15 years, but social scientists today have decided we're just going to dismiss biology as a social construct. It's not real. And we get to do whatever we want with our bodies. That's, it, that includes race, but especially with gender and sexuality. So this is, of course, complete and utter nonsense. But the irony is that it's the accepted dogma by our culture and our world today. It's just thoroughly accepted. You can't even argue against it. You're told right away, this is just a known known. For you to even argue against it makes you a bigot. You can't even argue against it. Well, I guess we're going to argue against it a little bit today. Pluckrose and Lindsay, in their book, respond to Rubin this way. And by the way, the emphasis that's in this quote was in the author's original written response. They write, this is Rubin's assertion. This is a highly pragmatic, agenda-driven argument. Rubin asserts that we should believe that sex, gender, and sexuality are social constructs not because it's necessarily true, but because it is easier to politicize them and demand change if they are social constructs than if they are biological. In other words, if you can't get your way in this world, just change the rules no matter how irrational and nonsensical the rule changes are. That's postmodern theory. That's what postmodern theory does. The authors, Pluckrose and Lindsay, also several times point out all the current theory related to gender and sexuality. In other words, queer theory, third and fourth wave, postmodern feminist theory, and gender theory. All of them have as a stated goal, unashamedly they state this as a goal, that the expression, definition, and explanation of these theories are to be as obscure and irrational as possible so that no one can ever argue against them. It's fascinating. And, and again, I'll tell you, I, I, I have a master's in theology. I went to Fuller Seminary, 
And, and I also have a Master of Arts in Human Communication Theory. So I am a social scientist. And what has happened to our discipline in social science, I, I love social science when it is pursuing truth, but what's happened to the discipline lately is we're no longer interested in truth. We're just pursuing what we desire. That's all that matters. That's all that counts. And I've been devastated by what's happened to our, our discipline. I used to be proud to say I'm a social scientist. Now, it's, in, in some circles, it's just frowned upon because of all this postmodern theory that has infected the discipline. And if you know anything about social science, you know that these theories that Gail Rubin and others are pursuing and pushing aren't theories at all. They're not theories. We're not allowed to test them for veracity. We're not allowed to try to falsify them, which we could do very easily. But rather, these are dogmas. They are creeds. The culture's movements in these areas are actually religious. This is a new religion. And there are stringent purity tests that you must pass in order to avoid being canceled or punished. So now let's move on to specifically the sexual ethic. And let's start by pointing out the gaping difference here in the way the world views sex and the way God views sex. Our culture, our world, views sex merely as an instrument of pleasure and identity. The, the culture has dismissed the biblical reality that our bodies are to glorify God and that in fact, when the new Jerusalem comes and Jesus comes, our bodies will be glorified with Jesus. In, in other words, the culture, our world, actually has a very low view of sex a low view of sex. God views sex as something that points to greater things, such as God's covenant love and the beauty of two becoming one in Christ. We've heard these passages in the Bible before in Genesis uh, chapter 2 and in Paul's writings and in Jesus' teachings in Matthew 19 about the two becoming one in marriage. The problem with only thinking about it in the marriage context is that that's a major theme throughout all of theology, this idea of two becoming one. The beauty of covenant love, of two diverse things coming together in unity. So you think about sinner, you and I, sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God because of our sin, being reconciled to a perfect and holy God, the two becoming one in the gospel. Jew being reconciled to Gentile. The, the, the ethnicities being reconciled in the gospel, in Christ Jesus. The church, the bride of Christ, the imperfect bride of Christ. Becoming one with the groom, Jesus. And that points toward what happens at the end of the book of Revelation when we have the marriage feast, the marriage celebration of the heavens meeting earth and the new Jerusalem coming and Jesus restoring everything and recreating everything. So unlike culture, God has a very high view of sex. And that's why he also brings along an ethic with it because he values it. You have ethics and, and boundaries, if you want to use that word, because you value something. 
because you value it. Sex, according to the Bible, is wonderful in its proper context, but it's even more than that. Sex is a window into the structure of greater things. It's a window into the structure of greater things. Now, this imagery that I'm about to use is not mine, but it's too good not to use it. And as a pastor, I like to use other people's imagery that's better than mine, so I'm going to use it, okay? Consider when land together with the ocean. Think about that. Um, Think about the California coastline. Okay, Land coming together with the ocean. It's beautiful, right? I can't wait to go to the coast. My brother lives in San Clemente, right on the beach. Okay, It's magnificent there. As a result of its beauty and its magnificence, we highly value it. The most expensive real estate in the world is where land meets water. My wife is from Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes. The most expensive homes in all of Minnesota, no matter where they are, Minneapolis or in some outlying area, if it's on the water, that's an expensive home. You can just bet it. Okay? So you and I clearly see the beauty and value of this unity of two diverse things. The beauty of the unity of two diverse things. Land meeting water gives us a window to greater things. It does something to our soul. The same can be said of sunsets. We love a beautiful sunset. It's the day and the night coming together for that one moment. The diversity of day and night coming together for that one moment that that just screams out beauty and uniqueness. Again, I said my brother lives in San Cle- he and his wife, if you've ever been to San Clemente, there's a mid-rise uh, condo building that overlooks the pier to the left as you're in, in the condos. Every single night, everybody who lives in those condos goes out onto their balcony at sunset and watches the sunset together. And when the sun disappears and you see that little green flash, everybody applaud. They're applauding a sunset. But they understand the the beauty of those two things coming together. The beauty of day and night coming together as one in that single moment is a window into much greater things. It's beautiful. It's a gift. The two becoming one. So, So this might also help explain why we are squarely in the midst of an overwhelming modern day irony when it comes to sex. And here's that irony. We seem to worship our bodies in our culture. We seem... We seem to worship our bodies, but we do not treat them as sacred or as a temple. Rather, through our, quote, body worship, we actually abuse our bodies with media and pleasure, disfiguring surgeries, poor dietary practices, and exploitation rather than reverence of sexual behavior. If you did not get a chance to either go to or watch the Redemption Live Uh, event that happened on Tuesday night this last week at Tempe. You need to go on the Redemption Arizona YouTube channel, not the Redemption Arcadia, but the Redemption Arizona YouTube channel. And if nothing else, watch Seth Trout's presentation. It's about 25 minutes long. It was absolutely magnificent. It's stuff that we've talked about here before, but he had this way of just consolidating it all into this magnificent 25-minute Uh, talk that really clarifies so many things about what we just said about this sexual behavior. 
So we treat our body as a playground while thinking that there are no spiritual consequences or damage to our souls for doing so. We've completely separated soul and body. And, and, and essentially we're thinking of, we, we would never say this out loud, but our culture thinks of, of the body as dead. It's, it's expendable. Therefore, we have a very low view of it. So we can do whatever we want with it. And that is why God has a sexual ethic, an ethic for what he deems is best for us when it comes to sexual behavior. It's the beautiful gift that points to a greater reality when expressed and celebrated in his holy context. And so here's what I hope we'll see. God's design and desire for our sexual behavior is not an exercise in rule-keeping, but an exercise in image-bearing. It's part of our image-bearing. We were created in God's image, and part of that image-bearing, not the whole thing, but part of it is his plan for unity and diversity in sex. And anything outside of that is going to break the covenant and break the unity. Josh Butler, who is a pastor at our Redemption Tempe uh, congregation and is an author. He's written several um, books. He talks about this diversity in union. Talks about it this way. He says, think about Jesus, the diversity of his humanity in union with his divinity. That's a beautiful thing. He talks about the diversity and unity in the Godhead, the Trinity, three in one. The, the, Jesus, the Son, uh, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, all distinct, different, diverse persons in the Godhead, but there's a unity there, a perfect relationship of, of community. The New Jerusalem, I mentioned this before, the New Jerusalem and the marriage of heaven and earth, the diversity between heaven and earth, and yet that's going to be married in the end when Jesus comes again. And this diversity that we're talking about is not diversity in preferences, but in being. The diversity between male and female. The diversity in races, where we come from biologically, and yet coming together in the gospel. So, let's look at, again, what uh, Catherine read, the first of several passages that I want us to look at. Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't do that well. So Genesis, actually I'm going to start with Genesis 1.27, where God finishes in day 6 with creation. And he writes, and Justin covered this two weeks ago, so God created humanity. That word translated man there literally means humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God specifically says, right from the very beginning, he created a diversity in this unity of humanity, male and female. The, the interesting thing about these ancient Hebrew words that are translated here, male and female, there's a bunch of different Hebrew words that you can use for male, female, man, woman, boy, girl, whatever. Um, but here, the interesting thing about these ancient Hebrew words is that in the right context, uh, the word translated as, as male can mean one who carries a spear or one who pierces, and the word translated as female means one who is pierced. So just think about that. So then you go to the passage that Catherine read for us, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. That's the first time God said something was not good. Up until now, everything that he's done was good, 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 good. The first thing that's not good is that the man doesn't have a relationship, a peer relationship with somebody. This is why we say 
that one of the most important ways that we bear the image of God is by being in relationship. We're not complete. We're not a complete image bearer of God unless we're in relationship with each other. Church in Christ, you and me as friends in community, marriage can represent that, but that's not the only uh, way that you can bear the image of God in relationship. But it wasn't good that the man would be alone, so he's going to make a helper fit for him. That uh, Hebrew idiom translated helper fit literally means complementary partner or reciprocating partner. Th this, this idea of helper fit or however else it's been translated has been used over the years to denigrate women. You've you got to remember that there's no sin yet in the world. Everything is still perfect. Nothing's been sullied by sin. There is no hierarchy. If you go to the man and the woman before Genesis 3 and say, who submits to who and how do you forgive each other, they would look at you like you had three heads. They wouldn't know how to talk about it. He is creating for the man a reciprocating partner. It's Ezer Konegdo. And the word Ezer literally means God is my helper. This is, this is an exalted term, Ezer Konegdo. And the only place in ancient Hebrew writing is, that it's used is here and in a few more verses. That's it. It's a unique little idiom of, of the Hebrew language. By the way, around the house sometimes I call Jackie my little Ezer Konegdo. She hates that. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. What? I thought he was going to create an Ezra Konegdo for him. Here's what God is doing. He's showing him everything he's already created, which is already good. He said it's good. He's showing him everything he's already created so that the man can see that what he's already created is not good enough for him. So God is going to show off. He's going to do something special for Ha'adam, the man. That's his name, Adam. And so whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds. But for Adam, there was not a, an Ezer Konegdo found for him. So the Lord God caused a, deep, caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he, he slept, he took one of its ribs, his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, and notice that this uh, is set off, this text is set off. The man responds to the first sighting of Eve, the first sighting of this woman with Hebrew poetry. He just breaks out into impromptu Hebrew poetry. Guys, we have got to step up our game. Maybe a little song in your heart, a post-it note, anything would be nice, okay? And he says, this is, now I know in English it sounds really dumb, but in the ancient Hebrew, it's beautiful. This is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's diversity, but there's unity there. Therefore, the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Literally in the, Greek, in the Hebrew, it's they will be inextricably knit together as one. And why does the man only, is, he's the only one who has to leave his mother and father? Well, it was assumed that the, that the woman, at the time that this was written later on, after sin had entered the world, it was already assumed that the woman was going to have to leave her family. But now God is saying the man has to leave his family too because the two are going to go off and they're going to form their own unit. They're going to do their own thing. They still love and honor their parents and their family, but they are their own thing now. 
And the two shall become one, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, of course, that's physical nudity, of course, but it goes deeper than that. There was a, there was a, 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 an, an intimacy that was emotional and spiritual. They, they were naked, which was a symbol of how they were just connected with each other in all phases. It wasn't just physical nudity. But then you look at Romans chapter 1, and you see how Paul talks about how this has all been sullied. He's talking about the gospel in verses 16 and 17, but then he says, but for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteous, unrighteousness suppress the truth. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The truth of God is obvious to us. We can see it, but we press down on it. We suppress it. We don't want it to be true because we want to be God. That's what Paul is saying. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, mainly his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You have no excuse for suppressing the truth of God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. Doesn't this sound like today? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the diversity of humanity and God for the sameness of humanity and humanity. We began to worship the created things. We began to worship the sameness. We have broken that diversity, and therefore we have broken that unity. Paul goes on, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So you see that the sameness is at odds with the diversity part of being unified. And that's where covenant is breaking, broken. That's where unity is broken. That's where the love and the reconciliation with God is broken because we have not recognized the beauty of the two diverse things becoming one in the gospel in Christ. Union is broken. God is other. We worship the created, not the creator. Male and female are diverse, but we give in to sameness. There is the tension that we wrestle with. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me go there and read that. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Do you see this high view of the body, not a low view? God says the body is not a social construct. I created it. It's beautiful. It's to be valued. You can't just do whatever you want with it. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We will be glorified. 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, sin is sin theologically, but the reality, the practicality of sin is that there are some sins that hurt us worse than others. Any of you who have been sinned against sexually know that is absolutely true. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within, within you, whom you have from God. You are not you, your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And then, of course, um, we have uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. I'm just going to read it on the, on the screen. There it is. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. See, this is the tension we wrestle with. We're wrestling with the fallenness of the world, the pressure of culture to get us to conform, to press into its mold for us. The world wants us to be molded to its dogmas, to its creeds. But Paul reminds us that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the tension we wrestle with as believers. And so now we're going to end with a story of the beauty and goodness of the sexual ethic that God has given us in the Song of Solomon. So a little context for you. Uh, the Song of Solomon is a love story that primarily describes the shared sexual love of King Solomon. Y'all, most of you probably heard of King Solomon at one point or another. Even if you've never been in church, you've heard of the great King Solomon. So it's the shared sexual love of King Solomon and his Shulamite wife. And the two of them take turns speaking back and forth to each other in beautiful poetry. Their deep, passionate, eros love and desire for one another in covenant is exposed in th throughout this entire book, chapter after chapter after chapter. And there's just incredible metaphor and simile and frankness. If God wanted biblical sexuality to be hidden and prudish, he did a really bad job by allowing this book, the Song of Solomon, into the Bible. He did. I've said many times, there's 66 books in the Bible. Two of them are rated NC-17. The Book of Judges for Violence and the Song of Solomon for Sex. God sees this as a window to greater things. That The whole book is this poetry of Solomon and his wife going back and forth, but it's also a picture of this greater reality of God and man reconciled in relationship. And so what we're going to do is just read and discuss a small snippet out of chapter 2 and then an extended passage out of chapter 4, and we'll be done. So chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is the um, Shulamite wife, the woman, speaking to Solomon, her husband-to-be. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved Solomon among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. 
Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So this is the bride speaking here, and she calls Solomon an apple tree. Why? Well, in their context, the apple tree is considered the greatest of all trees. Comparing him to this tree is a great compliment. It's also a tree that in their context, in their culture, symbolized protection and provision as well. So she knew that, that Solomon was going to be the type of husband who was going to provide for her and protect her as well. And, and she says, she goes on to say, I'm going to exist in his shade. In his shade is a poetic way of saying that in his embrace, in his uh, tent of covenant and love, I'm going to find pleasure and I'm going to find provision, and I'm going to find protection because I'm going to be held and enveloped by him. The Old Testament scholar John Balkin writes this, the unashamed physical frankness of this book should be obvious to the reader. So that's just a little snippet of her speaking to Solomon. But now I want to camp on chapter 4, the first 15 verses. This is Solomon now speaking to his wife. So turn to chapter 4. Look at the first seven verses with me. Solomon writes, he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have uh, come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. And not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the, mountains of myrrh, the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. So here's what's happening. This is actually their wedding day. They're preparing for this magnificent wedding ceremony. And, and what's happening right here is, uh, according to the historians and the, and the scholars, what's happening here is like a reveal time before the ceremony when the bride and groom get a sneak peek at each other. Today we call it the first look and we think it's a brand new thing that we just thought of 10 years ago. Okay, this was happening here in Song of Solomon chapter 4. But their first look was just a tad different. Even though she still has on her veil, we know from history and context that she's likely, what? Only wearing her veil. And, she, and he has not seen her like this yet because she's kept him. But this is like a teasing preview in their context, in their culture. So in these verses, Solomon stands in, in amazement. And, and what he does is he expresses his appreciation for and utter astonishment of her beauty. And, 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 and they both recognize that there's sexual tension that's building now. Sexually, the two have kept themselves from marriage. And all that keeping is going to end very soon. 
In these seven verses, Solomon's poem starts with her eyes and then works its way down her body. And although the metaphors are vivid and sensuous, they can be quite obscure to those who are not a part of their culture, like us. John Balkan, again, strenuously, strenuously, because, and he writes about this, because of the prudishness of our Christian world, strenuously makes this argument. To speak of his bride's body in these glowing terms is an expression of love and covenant. Christians need to realize that we are not so otherworldly that we cannot admire the human body and, in the correct godly context, talk about it. This is physical, sensual, and verbal love in the context of marriage, not the context of lust, which would be the incorrect context. And guess what? People are not so unhappy to hear that their loved one appreciates their body. It is silly and ignorant to think otherwise. So in verse 1, he says, beautiful. He just can't stop talking about how beautiful she is. And he says, your eyes are like doves. Doves, those birds, represent brightness, gentleness, and purity. He's saying, I'm glad you're my bride. And that wedding veil, you know, today we buy these wedding veils for thousands of dollars, and they're quite ornamental. And we fuss over them, pay a lot of money for them. But back then, the wedding veil was actually a romantic tool. It was, it was designed to opaquely obscure the eyes and the face so that you could sort of get a taste for what was behind there, but you, you, didn't, you didn't see it clearly. It was, it was like seeing through uh, the opaqueness darkly. So she's teasing him with her eyes. And, he, and, and then he talks about her hair. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Now, if you're a woman today and your fiancé says that your hair is like a flock of goats, that might be the end of the romance. But this is actually what he's referring to is a magnificent sight. What he's referring to is how there might be a herd of all black goats that would run down a green mountainous side, a hillside that's beautiful green, and the black of the goats running in unison against the green. Again, there's this diversity coming together in unity, and it's a beautiful, beautiful sight. This is a great compliment to say that her hair looks like a flock of goats. Only because he says, by the way, running down the green mountainside. Okay? So it's a beautiful, beautiful. The, the, this coming together of the two things to become one is a magnificent window, again, into God and his covenant love. And then verse 2. You know, they didn't have orthodontists or braces or whitening chemicals back then, but this woman apparently did not need them. Verse 2 describes a set of perfectly white teeth None missing, and they're matched upper and lower. This is extremely rare in ancient times. And again, you have great teeth is not a commonly used romantic pickup line in the 21st century. Okay? But her teeth are nice, and he likes them. So he talks about them. Here you go. Guys, the point, listen up. The point here is that we need to be complimenting our wife all the time. She likes it. She likes it. And I know some of you are like, this is so superficial. It's just about physical beauty. Believe it or not, we're going to get to the intellectual beauty in a few minutes. Don't worry. Hang in there with me. He also appreciates her intellectual beauty as well. Verse 3, all tremendous compliments. Her mouth is a beautiful set of matching red ribbons. Her facial skin is like a pomegranate. Again, this is a compliment. Pomegranate skin in their context, in their culture, was highly valued for its beauty, its texture, and its durability. It was a big compliment. 
and her neck is like a tower, is, is a tower of David. This is an ancient Jewish romantic way of saying that she is a strong woman of great endurance and intelligence. And then he says, your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Now that's rather personal and intimate, right? But the female body is beautiful. As we read earlier, God made the female unique and made her beautiful and made her special. He, he, he looks at the creation of humanity and says, not this is good, but this is very good. It's beautiful. It's set apart. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, when he fashions the woman and he brings the woman to the man and wakes him up, and he's just stunned. He's felled by her beauty. I, you know, I haven't talked about the Seinfeld show in more than a year. But I can't help it here. There's this episode where Jerry and, and George and, and Elaine are sitting in Monk's Cafe talking about the fact that people have been telling Jerry that his body is ugly. Okay? And he's protesting this. And he's saying, I, I don't understand. My body's not bad. I have, a, I have a nice body. And so he asks Elaine. He says, what's wrong with my body? And she says, chicken wing shoulders. Just like that, you know. He says, I don't understand. What are you talking about? And Elaine, here's what Elaine says, and this is theologically correct. Elaine says, you need to understand, the woman's body is beautiful. It's a work of art. A man's body is strictly utilitarian. It's like a Jeep. That's just true. <laughs> Elaine's quoting God. Verse 6, until the cool of the day comes and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh in the hill of frankincense. Now, what in the, what in the wide world of love does this mean? Okay, here you go. What he is saying, this is metaphor again, what he's saying is that the woman, his bride, is the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. And he's going to go to her. Uh, myrrh and frankincense are good things. He's going to go to her. How long is he going to go to her? Until the shadows flee, meaning until the sun sets. In other words, he's going to go to her all day long. It's beautiful poetry. And then verse 7, we see the gospel perspective. She is beautiful and he is captivated. And in his eyes, she will always be beautiful. Here you go. I'm going to read one of the most uncomfortable uh, parts of Scripture, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Solomon is talking to his son now, later on, and giving him advice about the sexual part of his marriage with his new wife. And he says, drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Uh, now he's speaking in metaphor and simile and allegory. He's not talking about when, when you get thirsty, make sure you go, don't go to your neighbor's well. He's talking about something else. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? No. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. He says to her, 
She's without flaw. And, and we know that isn't quite true. The corruption of original sin sullies our bodies. But this is the lens of biblical love, of gospel love, of covenant love. And through that lens, he sees perfection all the time. Jackie looks in the mirror and she sees flaws in her appearance. That's my wife, for, for those of you who are new. She looks in the mirror and she sees flaws in her appearance. And of course, with each passing year, she seems to see more. Yet I see absolutely none. There is not one thing that I would change about her. That's gospel eyes, my brothers and sisters. That's the beauty of covenant love. That's the beauty of the grace of the gospel inside of our marriage. 34 years as of yesterday. 34 years that we've been together. This is a window... It's 12 of the best years of Jackie's life. This is, I've always said she has the gift of discernment and it only failed her once. This gospel eyes thing is a window into something greater and more beautiful. We're getting a glimpse of the new Jerusalem here. Solomon now moves from the admiration of his bride to poetically describing the hopes that he has for their relationships, 8 through 15, and then we're done. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Cedar trees, beautiful fragrance. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with its all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. With all choices, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, the flowing streams of Lebanon. Is that it? Yes. So, she is beautiful, he says, and he's captivated. He, he, he calls her my bride six times here. Again, he's just enamored with her. He can't stop saying it. In verse 8, um, his bride is not literally from these places that he's talking about, but in his mind, she might as well be from these places because of the two things that this, this verse represents. Number one, these places are desolate and difficult, and he's telling her that with him, he's, she's going to have provision and protection, just like what Jesus gives us in the gospel. And second of all, he is asking her to leave her previous life behind, and be fully with him. Now, just as he will leave his past behind and be fully with her. Again, it's a picture of First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that when we are in Christ, we are now new creations. You and I need to lean into this as well, the full presence of the gospel. Jesus gave us his full presence and continues to give us his full presence. So this full presence of the two becoming one is so important. In verse 9 he says, you've captivated my heart. Solomon says here, 
Everything that he is and everything he has is hers. Everything he is, everything he has, and he was pretty well off. It's all yours now. Think about Jesus exchanging his life for ours on the cross. Think about Jesus exchanging his righteousness for our sin on the cross. You see what's happening here. And then he talks about that one glance. That one glance that he had with her, that initial glance. Very romantic. You might even say it's a bit of a fantasy. And yet that happened with me and Jackie. I remember the first time I looked at Jackie and she turned her head and she looked at me. I remember that first time. Third floor of the office building. Remember that first time I saw her. I was undone. I was slain. I wasn't even a Christian yet, yet the Holy Spirit took me out. I only understood that later. Thank you, Spirit. I was felled by that one look, that one glance, and I was never the same after that. And she still does it to me to this day. I will sit on the couch watching a show, and I'll just look over at her, waiting for her to look at me because I love that glance. Still, after 34 years. Now, this won't last of its own accord or momentum. That's one of the cultural lies that we have today. But it does last under the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. We have a secret weapon as believers. And then look again at verses 10 and 11. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. Calling her his sister is a sign of respect for her. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. His sister, yeah. It's a rhetorical device that, that shows a tremendous level of respect. In other words, she's not just an object of beauty. But also, these verses are just what you think of. They're sexual, they're se sensual. Can't explain it away. These two verses speak of two forms of intimate physical contact, and that would be caresses and kisses. And there is an intimacy about these kisses. He says milk and honey are under her tongue. How does he know that? Verse 12. <laughs> Moving on. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Uh, this idea of the garden means the garden is the entirety of their relationship. And because it is one of husband and wife, there's going to be, as an essential part of it, the act of sex. And the metaphor garden refers to the totality of the bride and groom's relationship and sexual being as one together. Let's not be prudes about this, okay? God said, and the two shall be knit together as one. And locked up refers to the fact that she has saved herself for marriage. It's a metaphor. She wasn't literally locked up somewhere. It's a metaphor, y'all. That is a great gift to the one that she marries. And then verses 13 through 15 is just a shower of complimentary metaphors, but these three verses are not physical. All of these are references, um, all these are references to plants in the garden, but it's a transition into Solomon complimenting her for her personality. Like in verse 15, he says that she's living water. In other words, water that's alive and flowing, not stored or still. In other words, she's intelligent and witty. She's winsome and smart. 
These verses also indicate that her love and ultimately their love is a love that's going to be ever expanding. It's going to grow deeper. I've heard this phrase before, familiarity breeds contempt. Not in the gospel. That may be true in the world and in the culture, but not in the gospel. In the gospel, familiarity breeds intimacy. And it breeds a type of intimacy that you and I have pined for our entire lives. It's the way I feel about Jackie now after 34 years. On my wedding day, I never expected that I would feel this kind of intimacy 34 years later. I always thought it would wane. No. That's the gift of God's grace. That's the gift of his covenant love. It's a picture of the gospel, the two becoming one. The body, our bodies, are sacred. We should treat them as such. And this kind of Talk in the Song of Solomon does not diminish the sanctity of the body one bit, but we do diminish the sanctity of the body when we deviate from the biblical sexual practice of one man, one woman, given in marriage. We constantly, though, think that there's something better out there, something more exciting, something more sensual that we can somehow create or invent, but there isn't. God honors covenant, commitment, loyalty, obedience, time, grace, and forgiveness. He honors those things. I've said this before and I'll continue to say it. I've taught for a long time in the colleges now, the last 24 years, different colleges, last 21 years at Paradise Valley Community College. And I teach mostly communication theory. And when the students, 18 to 22 years old, when they find out that I've been married for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, whatever it is, when they find out and, and they see how happy I am about it, they are absolutely confounded. And mostly it's the guys, I admit, but mostly it's the guys who say, I could never do that. I, I, I could never be happy with just one person for that long. I, I, I could never, how could you possibly do it? They're stunned. I can't do it. Well, my response to them is always the same. How do you know? You've never done this before. <laughs> I have. And I can tell you, it works. They're incredulous still. It doesn't matter. My testimony of my reality doesn't count with them. Isn't that amazing? So we're all excited about our truth until our truth conflicts with their truth. So it's a load is what it is when people say that. And you can imagine what it's a load of. It just... It doesn't stop them from speaking. They speak to me authoritatively about this. To me, who's done it. I need variety, some of them have said. Talk about objectification. Okay. See, Jackie and I have done it. What they say cannot be done, we've done. They casually dismiss my experience as outdated, old-fashioned, and archaic. Here you go. And I've told them this before. It's like they're writing a movie review on a movie that they've never seen before. If somebody wrote a review on a movie that you're about to go see, and they say, I haven't seen this movie, but I'm going to write a review, would you trust that review? Of course you would. It's not a trick question. Of course you wouldn't trust that review. Okay? Here's the thing. God has seen every movie. God has written every single movie, and he wrote the original perfect movie. I'm going to trust his review. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word and its truth, and thank you for its frankness, for its, for its ability to get right after things that maybe we're uncomfortable with and feel awkward about.
But God, what you're trying to point us to is this, this beautiful thing that you've created for us. So I just pray that you would allow us to, uh, to press into your design, to your originality, and trust that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing one more song together, and we're going to come to the Lord's table and do communion together as well. And we have the communion kits up front. You just come down the center aisle when you're ready. Grab your kit. Go back to your uh, seat. When you're ready, you can take the elements. And, and then when you're done, if you feel so led, you can stand and sing in this last song uh, with us. We're just reminded by coming to this table of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us, that he said he was going to make for us, that he said to his disciples that he was going to make. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body and it's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then later he took the cup of wine and he said, this is the covenant, the new covenant of my blood poured out for you. It's a covenant of love and it's a covenant of sacrifice and it's a covenant of forgiveness poured out for you. So you're forgiven for your sins. Paul tells us that every time we eat this bread and we drink this wine, we, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So when we step out into that aisle, we are confessing that we are sinners and we need God and we are celebrating the fact that we have him through Jesus Christ. So let's do that now. Thank you.
Well, thank you for worshiping with us this weekend. Uh, let me pray our benediction over us as we walk and go into our week. May the Lord direct your hearts in the love of God and in the steadfastness of Christ. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you guys again next week.